This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Bose, maker of the new Bose Frames Tempo, high-performance sports sunglasses that deliver high-quality audio. Science has shown that if you want to be a better athlete, you need to go from training that sounds like this to training that sounds like this. Thanks to the revolutionary Bose Open Ear Audio Design, the Bose Frames Tempo lets you listen to your music without headphones, so you stay aware of your surroundings, no matter what you come across when you're exercising outside. Two specially designed speakers embedded in the temples produce sound that's loud and deep. An advanced microphone system focuses on your voice and reduces the sound of wind and other noises, so you can have clearer conversations and the battery lasts for up to eight hours on a charge. The lightweight nylon frames are sweat and weather resistant and feature soft silicon nose pads for a more comfortable fit. Plus, interchangeable polarized lenses crafted for specific light conditions. The Bose Frames Tempo, designed for sports, engineered for sound. Learn more about how they can elevate your run or ride at Bose.com. That's B-O-S-E dot com. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Podcast. Hey everyone, before we get started today, please note that this episode contains language and subject matter that may not be suitable for some audiences. So this is a human skull that's basically encased in silver. This was from a Tibetan bone cult that believed that the best thing you could do with human remains is make art out of them. This is a human flute. This is a, a flute made out of a human femur bone. Welcome inside the home of Jeb Corliss, an extreme sports icon known for his spectacular base jumping stunts. For more than two decades, Jeb has flung himself from the tops of massive waterfalls, bridges, and skyscrapers, plummeted towards the earth, then pulled the ripcord on a parachute so he can hopefully land safely. Not surprisingly, base jumping is an activity that has a way of attracting people with a curious relationship to death. I've always been very um, interested in death and the idea of death and the yeah. fact that we're all going to die and that all the yeah. things die. Yeah. I've always found it yeah. very interesting. Early this year, longtime Outside Magazine contributor Daniel Duane visited Jeb at his home in a suburb of San Diego to interview him for a feature profile that was published in Outside's November issue. So his house has decorated with a lot of big framed color photographs of sharks that he personally took while diving with them. Big shark's tooth there. Uh, yeah, that's a megalodon. That's a megalodon tooth? Yeah. There's one other kind of decor in the house, and that is death. And, and to be more specific, skulls. There are just skulls of all kinds all over the house. So I have two human skulls that were prayer bowls. And then uh, this is a, a 24 karat solid gold skull wow. with rubies and diamonds for eyes. Wow. And the inside opens up into uh, basically this little world inside oh, with wow. stars and kind of saying the world's cool inside thing. your head. He lives in a very modest suburb. There's nothing fancy about it. It is not anybody's dream of where the elite athlete lives in splendor or something, you know. Uh, he just lives in a totally 
modest cookie cutter suburban tract home. This is uh, a pig fetus that was given to me for Christmas one year by an ex-girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> and this is, After uh, you broke up? No, no, I already got it. Oh, why are you? Because I like weird shit. And she gave me this little mouse fetus, same thing. Dan was writing about Jeb at a stage in an athlete's career when we often stop paying attention to them. Jeb is one of the original madmen of base jumping, and he has managed to miraculously survive multiple crash landings in a sport that rarely gives anyone a second chance. Outside has published a number of stories about him over the years, and he's been the focus of a string of documentaries and television specials. But now he's 44 and no longer chasing the edge of risk. Instead, Jeb Corliss has embarked on a different kind of journey. One that has him trying to understand how his obsession with a sport that should have killed him instead ended up saving his life. Jeb had come to a moment in his life where he was actually taking a really good hard look at the path he had followed and asking hard and interesting questions about that path. You know, Jeb has this wonderfully clear, unsparing way of looking at his own life and talking about his own life. He's not into sugarcoating anything. He has this sort of determination to see to see himself with clarity. And it's sort of a fascinating quality in a person who is simultaneously driven by such seemingly chaotic and irrational energies. So he has this kind of crystal clear intelligence looking at this complex and, and seemingly tormented and difficult psyche. Dan made multiple trips to speak with Jeb. And in addition to all their time looking at skulls, they spent hours driving around Southern California, out to restaurants, and also to Skydive Paris, a facility below the San Bernardino Mountains that has been Jeb's favorite drop zone for decades. This is what I've seen with jumping through my 20 plus years. The ones who've never been hurt are most likely the ones that are gonna die. Because what happens is, the getting injured is what it really teaches you. And, and these, these kinds of ideas of like, oh, you know, it, uh, if I follow these rules, everything will be okay. Whenever you hear someone say that, they're, they're in a delusional state. It doesn't work like that. You can do everything right and still die. That's not just for base jumping. That's for walking out your front goddamn door. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't care how careful you are. I don't care how perfect everything is. Once you understand what a brain aneurysm is, you'll realize that you can die at any moment, at any time, period. Yeah. It's at any second, yeah. right? Yeah. And, it, and each time you do something that that's increases risk, that adds risk to your life, you are increasing the chances of that happening to you, period. Yeah. Yeah. And base jumping is literal apex of adding risk to your life. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you're literally adding so much risk to your life that to, to pretend that, oh, I have this under control is lunacy. Yeah. It's, that's, it's not, that's just not accurate. You're not, you're not being honest with yourself or anyone else. And, and get this, no one believes you. Yeah. He's a good athlete and a very fit and strong guy, and he trains like hell, and he's got great balance and all this cool stuff. But what makes him a great athlete is not that he has the fastest fast twitch muscle or the strongest fingers or the whatever it is of anyone in the world. What makes him a great athlete is what happens in his mind and his relationship between desire, fear, panic, all of these things, right? He, so he has always, in a way, been an, an emotional and psychological athlete. <laughs> and then, of course, there's the, the salient fact about Jeb Corliss, which is really not true of a lot of elite athletes of any kind, is that he is one hell of a storyteller. Jeb's just straight physical adventure narratives about 
his experiences doing this are totally gripping and astonishing, right? The horrific accidents that he survived. But it's the emotional honesty that makes it compelling. And in a way, I feel like that's what a, a good story about base jumping kind of has to be. Because in some way, that's the question that's pressing on the mind of everybody who watches this stuff is, who would do that and why? To answer that question, you have to start with Jeb's childhood. Jeb was born in northern New Mexico, and his family lived a kind of vagabond lifestyle. His father was an art dealer, and after his mother sold her health food store for around $50,000, his parents used the money to fund an extended international adventure. This gives you an idea of how crazy my parents were. That's all they had. They didn't have a house. They didn't have a car. They didn't own anything. And they took that $50,000 and decided to take their three children to Afghanistan, Nepal, Pakistan, and India to buy art to bring back to the States to sell. I gotta get over. I'm not gonna make it. I am gonna make it. Jeb's father used a lot of drugs for a lot of years. And I heard a lot of pain in the way Jeb talked about that. And I heard a lot of frustration from Jeb over... Oh, I don't know. You know, it, it. I mean, it just has to have been hard for a kid to watch dad disappear into altered states. In the late 1980s, Jeb's family relocated to Palm Springs. And not long after, his parents split up. Jeb was 16 and struggling with suicidal thoughts. Then he saw a documentary about base jumping on TV. When I was 16, I was really depressed. But base jumping is what kind of saved me. And a 16-year-old depressed teenager who's going through emotional problems, you know, the thought process of, of that person is, is, well, at least of me, was quite twisted, you know. And when I saw base jumping, it would seem very perfect to me because I thought, well, you know, that's a perfect activity for me. If I succeed, like if I jump and I survive, then I've done something that very few other human beings in the world are willing to do. Um, if I don't succeed and somehow it goes wrong and I end up dying, well, then I get released from my suffering on this planet. So either way, I get what I want. It was a win-win situation. Jeb was too young to actually start base jumping, which at that point was a fledgling sport. But he never let go of the idea. And when he turned 18, his grandparents paid for skydiving lessons. Three years and 150 skydive jumps later, he purchased a base jumping parachute and drove to a bridge in the Sierra Nevada foothills for his first attempt. It did not go well. My first base jump was off of Auburn Bridge in Northern California, and I jumped in pitch black, new moon conditions. I couldn't see anything. I put down three glow sticks on the landing area, and the landing area at Auburn is like this um, dirt road with like these little jagged rocks. It's kind of like a cheese grater. And if you go down on it, it just flays your flesh. And uh, I overshot my glow sticks and couldn't see the ground because it was pitch black, and I flared too high, installed my canopy, and slid across this cheese grater ground, shredding both my knees, all the skin off my palms. I still have scars on my palms from it shredding so deep and all my elbows. I lost all the skin on my knees, elbows, and palms from sliding across this, this ground. And when I went back to my room, I remember packing my parachute to bleeding. And my parachute blinds turn red, there's blood on the ground. Somehow blood got on the ceiling, I don't know how that happened. But my room looked like a mass murder had happened in there. And then I went and jumped it again, that same night. 
After about 20 more successful jumps, Jeb found another bridge he liked, and he had his next accident. And this bridge is actually pretty high. It's like 420 feet, but you can't use all the altitude because it goes into a ravine with big dead trees. So you land on this little road, and the road has a cliff on one side and a power line on the other. The second time I jumped it, I got a 45 off heading, and I almost hit the power line, and I grabbed a rear riser. And as I grabbed the rear riser, the canopy stalled out and just slammed me into the asphalt. Oh. And it, my toes touched my ankle. It folded my foot in half. And then I'd say the next one was me hitting How It Falls, where I jumped a 300-foot waterfall in South Africa, had an off-heading opening, got sucked into the waterfall, smashed the waterfall, breaking my back in three places, all of my ribs, left foot, right knee. I cracked my solar plexus or whatever this thing is. Sternum? Sternum. Sternum. Yeah. Sternum. Like that's why it cracked and broke all the ribs on my right-hand side. And I was eaten alive by animals for three hours while I waited for rescue. Rescue took about nine hours. I seem to recall that these that the animals in question were crabs. Freshwater crabs lived in the water. When I hit the cliff, it had sliced my butt open, like flayed me open, and they were attracted to the blood and were eating the open wound. Wow. Yeah. So what does that feel like to lie there and, and feel an open wound being eaten? You know, the helplessness, like being helpless and, and not being able to move and having really small creatures chew on you is unpleasant. I would say if you can avoid that, do avoid that at all cost. <laughs> Jeb was in excruciating pain lying there at the base of the falls. And yet, as he told Daniel Duane, after the first responders finally got to him, he refused to take any pain medication. When the, the paramedics got to me, I told them I didn't want morphine. And they looked at me like I was a complete lunatic. And they're like, um, well, your back is probably broken, your hips look broken, your legs look broken, everything looks broken, and we're going to have to carry you out of here and probably bounce you off every rock along the way. And it's probably going to take around six hours. So, you know, you need pain medication. And I'm like, no, I don't want it. And they're like, well, you're going to have to give us good reason, otherwise we're giving it to you. And I'm just like, well, you know, I know what hurts right now. When I go to the doctor, I want to be able to tell him what hurts. You give me that shit, I'm not going to know what's going on. He refuses all pain medication, even like, you know, when he's had horrifying injuries and during really gruesome surgeries and all of that. I found that pretty hard to believe the first time I heard it. You know, it almost sounded like a pose or something. But I spent a fair amount of time with Jeb, and he told me a lot of stories, and he returned to that theme over and over again. And I came to recognize that it is intensely emotionally important to him. It's not just important that people understand it or believe it about him, but it, it is kind of vital to his sense of self and his understanding of life, um, this commitment to not using pain medication. You know, he, he will say, we were given these senses in order to experience life, to experience reality in all of its intensity and clarity. And he doesn't want to hide from that. He wants to have the full experience of life. It seemed to me that to Jeb that his father's drug use had come to be you know, perhaps self-medication for suffering, you know, for his dad's own suffering, but also a way of sort of hiding from life and hiding from the pain of life. And I couldn't help but wonder if Jeb's aversion to pain meds and even his embrace of extreme risk were not at least to some degree motivated by or shaped by that experience. Jeb continued to advance his skills taking trips around the world to exceptional jump spots like Angel Falls in Venezuela. 
He also took up other sports, like climbing and surfing and scuba diving. And it all began to draw him out of his depression and isolation. What I really liked about all of these things is they would force me to get up off the couch and do something. Like I couldn't just lock myself in a room. To get these things done, I'd have to actually live. And I, and I think that that's what's really interesting is that for these things motivating me to get out in the world and do things forced me to live my life. And by living my life, I started finding purpose. He also began to find a community for the first time in his life. In the late 1990s, Jeb bought a camcorder and started videoing his jumps with friends, including one from the top of the Stratosphere Hotel in Las Vegas. Here, grab my camera. We train professionals. Don't worry. In the beginning, I didn't like people very much, so I tried to avoid them. But over time, I started really enjoying the people. I started enjoying the experiences and the almost brotherhood that you get with these groups of people because it, it created very strong bonds because you're doing such dangerous things that everybody is reliant upon each other. And you know, if somebody gets hurt, you know, they're going to be the one who helps you. So you create these very tight-knit um, friendships. And, and that became a big part of the joy. But base jumping was not only about joy. This is a sport that kills people all the time. Something that Jeb would get very used to. I, I've seen so many people die that it's absolutely unbelievable. And, and this sounds like an exaggeration, but it really isn't. 80% of the people that I jumped with are dead wow. or, or seriously injured and can't jump anymore. One of the two. As the sport progressed, it only got more dangerous, especially with the introduction of wingsuits which allowed base jumpers to soar through the air for long distances. If you've seen videos of wingsuiting, then you know that it looks like the ultimate thrill, like being Superman. This creates some problems. Of course, humans being what we are, as soon as base jumpers figured out how to fly these wingsuits, it started to become appealing to be like, well, you know, let's have some fun, let's fly really close to things. One of the sort of psychological problems of it is that Everyone who does it says it's phenomenally fun and that it doesn't actually feel dangerous. In other words, you feel like you have great control and they just people who do it describe it as absolutely the feeling of human flight, just a thrill beyond all thrills. And Jeb will even say that like straight base jumping, just jumping off something and then pulling the cord is terrifying. Proximity flying what I've really heard from people who do it a lot is that the whole problem with it is that it's not scary. You, you jump off, and as soon as that wingsuit fills up and you get control of it and you start to bank along next to things, this beautiful, serene feeling of flight and control comes over you, and you're like, you like finally are a bird. But another sort of psychological problem with it is that, you know, if you think about like in climbing, for example, the way to sort of push yourself in climbing is to do ever harder climbs. Well, how do you push yourself in proximity flying? If the game is, if you get a rush by getting kind of close to something, do you then get a bigger rush by getting even closer? Do you get a bigger rush by getting closer still? Well, you know, that only ends one way, that game, that eventually you touch the thing. And then when you touch it, you've crossed the line into death. In 2003, Jeb witnessed his friend Dwayne Weston cross that line right in front of him at a base jumping festival at the Royal Gorge Bridge in Canyon City, Colorado.
Colorado. Dwayne was an Australian jumper who, when I got into jumping, he was kind of the apex of the sport. Okay. He was considered the greatest base jumper to have ever lived at that time. Wingsuits were still relatively new then, and Jeb and Dwayne wanted to wow the crowd by jumping from an airplane and flying their wingsuits close to the bridge. Dwayne above the span and Jeb below. It all started out just as they had planned. But as Jeb approached the bridge, he noticed something strange. And then all of a sudden, I'm coming up underneath the bridge, and as I come under the bridge, I see Dwayne's parachute deploying in my face. Which I'm like, what is he doing pulling right here? Like, it was a very weird place for him to be pulling his parachute. And I, and it, I couldn't understand what was happening. And I'm like, shit. And I had to turn to keep from hitting him. Like, I would have gone, if I had just stayed on my, on my trajectory, I would have gone right through it. So I basically turn right, and as I turn right, I just miss him. And then all of a sudden, there's all this debris in the air. Like, all this stuff. And I don't know what any of it is. I'm like, and I remember thinking, are people throwing shit off the bridge? Like, what is all this stuff? And then as I come out of the debris field, I'm like, what? And then all of a sudden, I, like, I can't think about that anymore. I'm like, low altitude, flying in a very narrow gorge. And I'm losing altitude the entire time, going, oh, shit. So I'm flying, trying to get myself in a good position for deployment. And I fly for quite a bit further than I deploy. And I remember opening the parachute opening and just being so excited. Like, I kind of blocked everything that just happened out. And I'm like, oh, no, that was amazing. And I landed. And all of a sudden, I look up, and I see Dwayne's canopy hit the cliff. I'm like, oh, shit. Dwayne had a cliff strike. Oh, no. And I hear somebody, like, next to me. I'd landed next to they're like no 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 Jeb he hit the bridge and he's dead and I'm like what and all of a sudden I look down and I'm covered in blood and then I look over and I see a severed leg lying on the ground I always knew the sport was dangerous and I always knew stuff could happen but this was so far beyond anything I could ever have imagined and it was so extreme and so violent and so just horrendous that I went into shock, like, instantly. And, and all of a sudden, the sensation is one of being in, like, a tunnel or a tube where things get very quiet, and, and, and time kind of distorts. And all of a sudden, you're, like, walking, and you don't know where you're going, and you don't know what you're doing, and you don't know what's happening. I don't know how I got back up to the top of the bridge, but I remember then being at top of the bridge, and I remember just getting on my knees, and then I just start crying. And I didn't, and I've never cried. I don't cry. I'm not a crying kind of person. And I just couldn't understand what was happening. And I couldn't really connect to the feelings that I was having. It was surreal and, and just so unbelievable. Like, I couldn't believe it. How did the Duane experience affect you? <sighs> you know, I've had a lot of moments in my life where I've questioned what I do and why I do it. The experience with Dwayne was one of those moments that really made me question, why do I do this? And is this worth it? And what's the point? Mm -hmm. You know, it was one of those very powerful, strong moments of, you know, I don't know if this is worth it. And it, it took me months and months and months to reconcile. And, 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 and I... I kind of came to a realization, which is, okay, I can stop base jumping right now. I can stop flying wingsuits. I, 
like stop diving with sharks, riding motorcycles, climbing, big surfing, big waves. I could stop doing everything dangerous right this minute. And I'm still gonna die. That's not gonna prevent my death at all. I'm still dead, you know? It's, it's just a matter of time, really. And the question is, how do I wanna spend that time? What do I wanna do with the bit of time I have while I'm on this planet? And, and I've come to the realization that base jumping, shark diving, climbing, surfing big waves, these are things that enrich my life and give my life meaning and purpose. And, and could I be a happy person without it? And that's where the crux of all of this is, right? I'm wired in a weird way. We'll be right back. At the top of the episode, we spoke about the new Bose Frames Tempo, high-performance sports sunglasses that deliver high-quality audio without headphones. Research has shown that listening to music while exercising doesn't just make your training more fun. It makes you a better athlete by improving your mood, lowering your perceived exertion level, and accelerating your performance. But don't just take it from scientists. Take it from real athletes. It just gives me energy. Like, your cadence of your run is just, I think music is meant to go with that. This is Jane Galvin, director of music for Electric Flight Crew, a running club that synchronizes workouts in cities across the country with shared playlists. I love, you know, more upbeat kind of techno that maybe isn't everyone's favorite, but the beats per minute really counts. These days, Jandas are running on the streets of L.A. and oversees the creation of Electric Flight Crew's weekly playlists. She can't imagine why anyone would run without music. Running is really hard, and I do think music is really what can, like, carry you through. It's just so powerful. The Bose Frames tempo makes your music especially powerful, with speakers in the temples that produce a sound that's louder and deeper, so you can feel the music even over the rush of the wind when moving at speeds of 25 miles an hour. But with no headphones, you can also hear what's going on around you. The scratch and shatter-resistant polarized lenses are ideal for most outdoor sports, and the aerodynamic nylon frames are so light and comfortable, you'll forget that they're even there. The Bose Frames Tempo. It's the sound you expect from Bose, with everything you need from sports sunglasses. Learn more at Bose.com. After Dwayne Weston's death, Jeb continued to pursue the wildest base-jumping projects he could dream up. In 2003 alone, he circled the globe six times, completing 400 jumps in 16 countries on five continents. He made a living mostly by licensing footage of his exploits for commercials and TV shows. From the outside, it seemed like he was a daredevil who had it made. But the truth is that he was miserable and often terrified. Three, two, one, see it. I very rarely go to do a jump where I don't have a bad feeling. You know, I, I'll say this. There, I would say out of 90% of the jumps I do, I have a bad feeling. I don't have a positive feeling. I'm not standing at the exit point going, oh, this is exciting. No, I'm standing at the exit point going, nah, this fucking sucks. This, is, this makes me feel like shit. And like people are like, oh, you were an adrenaline junkie. No. If I could jump without adrenaline, I would. I don't like adrenaline. Yeah. You're at super heightened alertness. Mm. You feel like shit. It's scary. I have been so gripped, I'm shaking. Like literally uncontrollably shaking at the exit point. Mm. 
I've always described it as a hurricane inside your head. It just every nerve ending is screaming, don't do this. Wow. Don't do this. Everything. There's nothing that tells me that this is a right decision. Nothing. It's something I have to fight and struggle and, and, and beat back. And that's what a lot of people don't realize. They were like, oh, you're fearless. You're fearless. I'm scared shitless. I'm terrified. This shit is terrifying. Ah, I haven't heard you giggle for a long time. That was nice. <laughs> that was perfect, huh? Yeah, man. Nice. That was perfect. And really, I have a mental issue. I've had a mental issue throughout my life. And I've had to work through that mental issue. And I've used these things to do it. And these have been the only things that have helped me do it. If I die in the process of trying to work on my mind and try to fix damage that's going to kill me anyway, right? Then that's kind of, in my personal opinion, an okay way to die. It's okay to die in the process of trying to save your own life, you know? Because without it, I'm dying anyway. That's how I can justify the unjustifiable to myself. I needed this to survive. Without this, I was gonna put a bullet in my head. I couldn't exist without it. So when people are like, oh, this is like heroin, you're a heroin addict, it's like, no, 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 no. This, this isn't heroin. This is food. This is water. This is air. This is, I can't survive without it. That's what it was for me. So Jeb just kept going. By the early 2010s, he'd become the face of base jumping, drawing huge crowds for stunts he carried out all over the world, including flying through a 100-foot arch in a mountain in China called Heaven's Gate for a TV audience estimated to be in the hundreds of millions. He was getting featured in ESPN and HBO documentaries and making appearances on shows like Conan O'Brien and Good Morning America. He has done it again. That superstar daredevil Jeb Corliss in his synthetic wingsuit jumping from... All of this built up to Jeb believing that he was ready to take wingsuit flying to its most extreme point yet. Another sort of obvious endpoint of the wingsuit dream is the question of, is there a way to land a wingsuit without pulling the parachute? Could you jump off something, fly with enough of a glide ratio and control, flare at the end in some way, slow down and just land on the ground? Jeb at one point was interested in exploring those limits of proximity flying by seeing if it might be possible to glide really, really, really close to the ground or to a fixed object and even slightly touch or kiss the ground and then pull away again. I wanted to jump, fly down a mountain slope, and then slide my feet through snow for 300 feet as I came down a mountain and fly back away. In 2012, Jeb had an opportunity to do some preliminary training for this objective at Table Mountain in Cape Town, South Africa, where he had just finished filming a segment for Real Sports with Brian Gumbel. And what I decided was at Table Mountain, they had this wonderful flat ledge where we could put balloons where I could do more target training for precision to transition into this next project I was going to do. So I had my buddy put a balloon on that ledge. So he went down, set up cameras, set up the balloons on like six feet of string. And just before I jump, he calls up on the walkie and is like, Jeb, it's kind of windy. I, I don't think you should go for the balloons. He's all, honestly, you should fly over them. He's all, I don't think it's safe. And I'm just like, oh, don't worry. I'll see if they're moving. And if they're moving, I'll just fly over the top of them. He's like, all right. So be careful. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's all cool. No problem. You know, I'll be able to tell. 
Alright. Which is stupid. Okay. Three, two, one. See it. What happened is he had put it on a on an upper ledge and the wind blew it down and it connected on a ledge beneath it. So there were two ledges, one on top of the other. And as it as the wind blew it to the lower ledge, it hooked on a rock on the lower ledge, which made it only about six inches off the ground. And then because the two ledges were kind of stacked on top of each other, it created an optical illusion, which made me feel like I had more space than I did. So I end up impacting a flat granite ledge. I impacted at the waist. So just below the important parts. And it uh, blows my legs completely apart. And as I impact, I bounce and I bounce and tumble. And then as I'm tumbling, luckily I had decades of acrobatic experience because I was able to regain control very quickly. So I impact, bounce, do a couple flips. I think it's like two flips with a full twist. And then I come out and I'm flying again. When I impacted, I knew I was dead. It wasn't a question. It was an unsurvivable accident. I had watched my friend Dwayne impact and be severed in half. I had probably at that point seen about 10 people die in a similar way. And if you impacted at terminal velocity on flat solid ground, you're dead. The, the thought in my head was I've got kind of two choices. I know I'm dead. The question is, do I want to have a, a slow, painful, agonizing death where I open a parachute, hit the ground, and then bleed to death while I'm waiting for a heli rescue? The other thought was, well, I could not pull and then just impact and be dead right away. Like, you know, no suffering, no pain, just over. And it was a strange thought to reconcile. You know, and then all of a sudden, the part of my brain that was doing calculations is like, you pull now or you die. That's it. This is right now. You pull now. And the part of my brain, I actually remember consciously thinking this. I'm like, well, good thing you like man. Let's see how much time you can get. That was it. It's like, how much time? Can I get five minutes? Can I get an hour? Whatever it is I want. Whatever amount of time I can get at this moment, that's what I want. So I pitched. And as I pitched... My canopy opened with line twists. I had about a one and a half second canopy ride before slamming into the cliff for the second time. Which was also broke more bones and was quite violent. Then I was laying under a black canopy wearing all black on the hottest day in South Africa, like Cape Town, they ever recorded. I think it was like 122 degrees. I had a huge opening in my right shin that looked like meat. Literally, it looked like I was disemboweled. Like the muscle had been shredded and came out and looked almost like spaghetti coming out of my leg. It was really gross. The first people to get to me were two hikers who were walking and seeing the accident. They were probably to me within 10 minutes. Can you drink? Yes, thank you. Is anything broken? I have for sure. What's your name? My name's Jeb Corliss. Jeb Corliss? Yes. Where are you from, Jeb? I'm from Venice, California. From Venice, California? Can really? I have some more water? Yes, yeah, of course. Thank you. Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh man, that was really bad. Yeah. You're okay though. 
Oh, I'm alive at least. Yeah, you're alive. I totally thought I was dead all the way until I got to the hospital. And then when I got to the hospital, I heard one of the doctors say, oh, this looks like a double amputation. And I was like, oh, Jesus. But it was funny because when I heard that, the thought wasn't, oh my God, I'm going to lose my legs. The thought was, I, I, you mean I might not die? Because at that point, I was sure I was dead. Like, I'm like, oh, I'm just waiting for the lights to go out. You know, I'm like, I'm going to die. This is, this is just, we're just doing this for fun because there's no way. You can't live through this. It's impossible, you know? And then when he said that, I'm like, holy shit, I might, I might live? And I was like, huh. Jeb's injuries were extensive. I broke mo- all of my toes on my left foot. I blew out the ACL, ripped, shredded my ACL in my left knee. It blew a massive hole in my right shin that needed four surgeries and two skin grafts to close. It broke my fibula. It ripped both of them, all the muscle off of both my thighs off the bone um, and pushed it down into my knees. As the doctors worked with Jeb in his first hours in the hospital, it became clear that while he was in very rough shape, he'd survive he'd also be able to keep his legs and possibly even make close to a full recovery. I learned something really important that day, which is, you know, no matter how bad you think it is, right? No matter how bad you think your life is or what's happening to you is, you know, you still should try, you know? I could have just given up and been done right then and there. And and I'm really glad I gave it a shot. As Jeb explained it to Daniel Duane, the accident transformed his relationship to base jumping. I feel that I finally got what I needed from it. You know, I went through the exorcism and the demons were released. It, it just all of a sudden one day, I'm like, yeah, I don't have to jump. I don't have to. But Jeb still does jump, though it's not like it used to be. Now it's for fun. I never did this for fun in the beginning. In the beginning, it was work. This was heavy, like, psychological trauma. Like, I was going through trauma every time I did this. I was fighting the fire burning in my mind with fire, you know, and that's what it was. I was, you know, like, when you have a forest fire and you start a little smaller fire to kind of block that fire, well, my brain was on fire. I was burning internally, and I was, like, setting these little firewalls, like, trying to burn in front of it to try to, like, stop it because it was eating me alive and luckily I found something like base jumping that was just so extreme and just so intense and just took all of my mental energy to do and that helped me just channel all of it into this place that wasn't as negative I really do feel like base jumping saved my life in so many ways We've all heard a lot of stories like that, right? That sounds almost like a cliche when I say it now, doesn't it, right? The athlete who says, well, you know, yeah, I was the best in the world, but the hardest thing I ever did was getting over the pain of my father's disapproval of me when I was a child. Well, as you get older, you come to understand that those stories are all true. Those challenges actually were the hardest thing, and they actually did take the most courage. In a way, for me, the thing that Jeb had done in deciding to confront the pain of the life that he has lived really is the great achievement. It really is the great base jump. It really is the great wingsuit. It really is the one where you just finally rip off all your defenses and face the pain that lives inside you. That is not easy. And 
Jeb actually is finding his way through that with grace and courage. And that's the most badass thing there is. Right now, no matter what happens, I'm okay. I realize that. No matter what happens to me, if I get paralyzed, I'll be okay. I'll find ways to entertain my brain. You know, and if I die, I'm okay. Whatever, pick a thing, and I'll be fine. I'll figure it out. And that's a really wonderful place to find yourself at 43. When you finally get to that spot where you know you're okay, everything's going to be just fine, no matter what. You know, and then you find someone you really love, you know, you get engaged and you start realizing, wow, I might actually have a kid. I love my little garden. Like I have a garden, I grow like tomatoes and all these little vegetables and we're trying all these different little peppers and stuff. And I, I love planting and growing stuff now. <laughs> you know, I, I love my little dog. I have a little dog and I like playing with my dog and going for walks and I like riding my bike on the beach. I mean, I now all of a sudden, after all of these years, I actually am happy just doing normal life things what? you know and, I, and I'm, I'm I'm pretty uh I'm pretty happy if you or someone you know is having thoughts of suicide or self-harm call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline toll-free from anywhere in the United States at 1-800-273-8255 or go to their website, suicidepreventionlifeline.org. You can read Daniel Duane's feature profile of Jeb Corliss in the November issue of Outside Magazine, as well as on our website, Outside Online. And while you're there, please consider making a contribution to Outside to fund the storytelling we do on this show. You can do that right now at outsideonline.com backslash podcast listener. We really appreciate your support. This episode was produced by Luke Whalen and edited by me, Michael Roberts. Our music is by Robbie Carver. Special thanks to Jeb Corliss for giving us access to his archival video footage. This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Bose, maker of the new Bose Frames Tempo, high-performance sports sunglasses that deliver high-quality audio. Learn more at Bose.com. We'll be back next week.